Welcome back to another episode of Piano Rhapsody, an amateur's guide to classical piano. My name's Andy, I'm an amateur piano player, and this is a podcast where you follow my journey as I work my way up to playing Rhapsody in Blue one day. Every week we break down one of the pieces that I encounter along this road to get there, and we all learn a little bit about music history and theory. This is episode 4.3, the third edition of a series on Bergmuller's Opus 100, which is a collection of 25 etudes that get progressively more difficult as they go along. This series will have five episodes total, so this episode puts us smack dab in the middle of the collection. But before we jump back in, I wanted to mention an article I read in Noisy, which is the musical division of Vice News. The article is about how interest in classical music is spiking due to the worldwide quarantine. And people are finding comfort in classical music, since we are all stuck spending a lot of time indoors. Classical music has a stigma of being solely for snobs in high society. And I guess that kind of made sense in the distant past. The only ways someone could hear classical music back then was if you could A, afford a ticket to a live performance, or B, play it yourself. This wall broke down a bit with the invention of radio, and even a bit more with the advent of physical media, things like albums and CDs. Side note here for future listeners, you may need to pause the recording and Google these things to understand. Man. Hopefully Google's still a thing in the future. But I think the wall has finally come tumbling down with the rising popularity of streaming. It's better than radio because you have the element of choice to play whatever you want, whenever you want. It's better than physical media because you have an entire library of music right at your fingertips. And the best part is that it's... Wait, it's free? Alright, what's the catch? I know this may sound like a too-good-to-be-true late-night infomercial, but for once, there is no catch. We are entirely spoiled in this modern age, and I'm not surprised to see that people are starting to take advantage of technology, and that this style of music that has been quote-unquote guarded from entry for years is starting to make a comeback. I mean, I could personally say that's why I'm doing this podcast in the first place. One of my major goals with this project is to lay down a welcome mat to classical music and provide an entry-level listening experience. So even if all the theory doesn't click, don't worry. We'll go over it again, and to be honest, it's not even essential to understand every nook and cranny of a piece to appreciate it being performed. With modern pop music that we hear on the radio, we feel connected to a song when we are struck by a lyric that relates to us, or a melody that we find appealing. Sometimes all it takes for us to make a connection is a certain artist to sing a song, because we've already connected to them previously. Classical music is a blanket term that includes a massive group of work that spans over 300 years. It can be overwhelming and intimidating to dive into this ocean. My main goal is to highlight some easily digestible pieces and try to give you some tools to make these same connections to classical music. So while our focus here in this podcast is on classical piano, the article from Vice includes playlists for Baroque, classical, and Romantic eras that have both orchestral and piano pieces on them. And if you order within the next 30 minutes, we'll cut one of the payments to... (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. It's all free. 
Maybe they'll throw in a ShamWow, but I wouldn't count on it. But if you're interested in checking out that article in those playlists, I'll link it in the episode description. Alright, let's get back to Bergmuller. Today we're going to start with etude number 11, the wagtail. This etude is a sonic portrait of a wagtail, which is a type of small bird, kind of like a finch, that constantly twitches its tail. This fluttering tail is represented by small trios of broken chords, some going up, some going down. Let me give you a gist of the sound. So this is another etude written in C major, but the musical element I wanted to dissect a bit in this piece is the idea of chromaticism. The chromatic scale is actually the simplest scale of them all that anybody can play, because it is the scale that includes all 12 keys. So to play a C chromatic scale, you would start on C, and then play every note one at a time until you hit the next C. It's kind of like a ladder, you have to hit every rung on the way up. So while a majority of this etude is written in C major, it includes short snippets of chromaticism. We're going to focus on the opening for the sake of our discussion. These chords illustrate a descending chromatic pattern. Let me isolate the leading tones of the right hand during this section to really bring out what I'm talking about. So while it's not a full chromatic scale, it's a partial one. The rest of the notes are just window dressing and harmony. There are a couple of very short instances of this throughout the etude, but the introduction is the best example I could find. So let's have a listen to this little twitching bird tale. Here is Bergmuller's etude number 11 from Opus 100, titled The Wagtail. So next we're going to skip number 12 and number 13 and shoot straight ahead to etude number 14, entitled Styrian Dance, which is also known as an Austrian waltz. So I figured this would be an ideal time to talk about the history of the waltz. A waltz is a piece of dance music written in a 3-4 meter. And to refresh our memory about meters really quickly, the top number indicates how many beats there are in a measure. So a key feature of the waltz is its three-beat pulse, specifically with a slight emphasis on the first beat of the measure. And the popular way this is described onomatopoeically is oom-pa-pa, oom-pa-pa, 
Mpapa, Mpapa. Sounds straight out of Willy Wonka. The waltz started as a peasant dance and was later adopted by the Viennese High Court by the end of the 18th century. Before the waltz, dancing at the royal court required very little to no actual human contact. If you can picture one of those period costume drama films where there's a lot of spinning around, and maybe if you're lucky, you get to touch a hand. Well, when the waltz gained popularity with the nobles, not everybody was on board. As you might know if you were required to learn ballroom dancing during PE class in high school like I was. The waltz requires a close-hold stance, which religious leaders at the time criticized as vulgar and sinful. This actually went so far as the clergy threatening waltzers with death. And you thought the people in Footloose were bad. But the prude and religious were not the only ones opposed to this new dance craze. Many dancing masters at the time were less than enthused with the new dance because, again, if you were forced to learn the waltz in high school, you would know that the waltz can be taught very quickly, like in one half-hour gym class. It was simpler and more repetitive than other dances at the time, so the dance masters were worried that they would quickly be out of work. Yet despite its opposition, the waltz thrived under a group of composers led by Johann Strauss, who was given the nickname the Waltz King, and who crafted arguably the most famous waltz of all time, the beautiful blue Danube. So even though the waltz was viewed as the twerking of the 18th century, the musical form stood the test of time and was written by many composers to come, notably Chopin, Brahms, Ravel, and Tchaikovsky. The popularity of the waltz took a hit after World War I, which destroyed the Austro-Hungarian monarchy and the culture which raised the waltz to popularity. But compositions of waltzes never really stopped and are still being written to this day. So let's get back to Bergmuller's waltz. This etude is written in a form that we haven't seen yet. And to be honest, I'm not really sure if it has a specific name or if it's used that often. But the form is A, B, C, A, B. So it's kind of similar to a rondo form since it has three different parts. But it has a different organization than the A, B, A, C, A that we are used to with the rondo form. The piece opens with a quick introduction to get us used to the 3-4 meter. Then the A section takes off. This section is written in G major and is light and graceful with a few decorated notes. Then section B trades the major key for E minor, giving this section a bit of a darker feel. This section contains even more decorated notes, which help emphasize the first beat and really puts the um in the um pa pa. The C section brings the piece back to major sound and includes leaps of notes in the right hand, spanning over an octave. This gives the C section a playful feel. Then the A and B sections are basically repeated note for note, 
which takes us to the end of the piece and completes the ABCAB form. Here is Bergmuller's Etude Number no. 14, Styrian Dance from Opus 100. We're going to close out this episode with etude number 15, titled Ballade. The term ballade was first used in the 1830s by Chopin to describe a lyrical solo piano work written in a narrative style. Chopin wrote four ballades, which are widely considered a high point in his body of work. They are also among the most difficult pieces that Chopin composed, so chances of us discussing these on this podcast are currently a pipe dream but stay tuned. The ballade style was also implemented by other popular romantic composers, including Clara Schumann, Brahms, and Liszt. The art of ballade writing continued into the 20th century a bit as well, including composers like Debussy trying his hand at Chopin's creation. While Chopin's ballades are epic works with multiple themes, Bergmuller's Etude 15 is kind of a baby ballade by comparison. Along with Etude Number no. 2, Arabesque, this one is probably the most popular piece from Opus 100, and it tends to pop up in a lot of compilation books for intermediate-level students. It's a return to Bergmuller's tried-and-true rounded binary form of A-B-A. The title doesn't do much to suggest a specific narrative, but it leaves its interpretation completely up to the listener. The piece is set in the key of C minor, and the opening A section contains the main musical element that this etude is trying to convey. It's a bit of a tricky feat of hand independence. The left hand carries the melody in what is known as legato playing, which means smooth and connected. The minor key gives the melody a creepy vibe right from the start. Then, on top of the left hand's melody, the right hand pounds out sharp chords in staccato style, which means detached and with a pop effect. This effect could be intended to simulate 
a quickly beating heart in this case. This drastic contrast between the left and right hands is a bit like the good old children's trick of rubbing your belly while patting your head. It seems contradictory for your two hands to play in different styles, but it just takes some practice. The combined effect of the minor melody with the staccato heartbeats lends itself to exploring an old haunted castle in my mind. Tall, pointy towers, a long, windy path, bats, full moon, it's probably inhabited by Dracula, you know, the whole nine yards. Part B backs off from the creep factor a bit into something a little more melodic and calm, and swaps the C minor key for C major. But soon we're back to the frantic heartbeat with the right hand, in a return to part A. The piece ends with a flurry in both hands which makes me imagine a person running out of this haunted castle as fast as humanly possible. But the haunting, loud, minor chord at the end kind of suggests that whoever, or whatever, they were running from ended up getting to them first. See what you think and where your imagination takes you. Here's etude number 15, Ballad from Bergmuller's Opus 100. And Baby Balad makes three. Thanks for listening. Hopefully you learned a little something and appreciated this trio of etudes. Check in next week and we'll go over three more. The standalone recordings for the pieces we discussed in this episode can be found in the podcast feed. We skipped etudes number 12 and 13 for this episode, but if you'd like to hear those, I will be adding them to my SoundCloud page. You'll find a playlist there called All Music, No Talk, if you'd like to just stream all the piano recordings from this podcast without interruptions from the talk episodes, just in case the title wasn't clear. You'll also see a playlist with all of the etudes from Bergmuller's Opus 100 in numerical order. I'll be adding to that as we go along, and in a few weeks, you'll be able to stream the whole work. 
If you'd like to reach out to me with your argument for the best Bergmuller etude in Opus 100, or any other questions you may have, find me on Twitter at Piano Rhapsody, or you can email me at pianorhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. Lastly, if you happen to notice some stars below the episode description, and you're able to count to five, I highly encourage you to click on that fifth little star. I really appreciate you and your listening support. All right, have a good week, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday.